Last week we saw David's deliverance from participating with the Philistine army against his own people turn into a nightmare as he and his men returned to Ziklag, their city of refuge, so to speak, to find it burned and find all their families and valuable possessions gone. The people had been taken captive. The horror of this unforeseen disaster brought David back to depending upon the Lord instead of himself. He found strength in the Lord his God, we read, and then inquired of the Lord about what to do in the first part of chapter 30. The Lord gave David direction to pursue the raiding band and promised that David would surely overtake them and rescue his people, recovering all that had been taken. And today we continue in 1 Samuel chapter 30 to discover what happened and what God teaches us about himself. The rest of this story in chapter 30 breaks down into four sections. First, David leaves Ziklag with his 600 men, believing God's promise that they will not only find and overtake these raiders, but recover everything, their families and possessions. That's in verses 9 through 16. The question there, though, is how David finds them. And we find out a lot about God in this section because it's by God's providence only. And that is the whole point of this first section. Secondly, we see how God's promises are kept to David in verses 17 through 20, because they were pretty specific. He would overtake them, he would rescue his people, and he would recover all, everything that had been taken. Thirdly, we see in verses 21 through 25 how David has learned once again to live by God's grace. And fourthly, this victory that God brought encourages not only David and his men, but we find out also many other Israelites were blessed and encouraged in verses 26 through 31. If you are able, would you please stand as I read 1 Samuel 30, verses 9 through 31. 1 Samuel 30, beginning at verse 9. So David set out, and the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook Bezor, where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued, he and 400 men. 200 stayed behind who were too exhausted to cross the brook Bezor. They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David, and they gave him bread and he ate and gave him water to drink and they gave him a piece of cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, 
To whom do you belong and where are you from? He said, I'm a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite. And my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We had made a raid against the Negev of the Cherethites and against that which belongs to Judah and against the Negev of Caleb and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, Will you take me down to this band? And he said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this band. And when he had taken him down, behold, they were spread abroad over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day. And not a man of them escaped, except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken. And David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the, lock, the, the livestock before him and said, This is David's spoil. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left at the brook Bezor. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. But David said, You shall not do so, my brothers. With what the Lord has given us, he has preserved us, and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. When David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, Here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. It was for those in Bethel and Ramoth of the Negev and Jatir and Eror and Sithmoth and Ishtamoa and Rakhal in the cities of the Jeremielites, in the cities of the Kenites, in Horma, in Borshin, in Athka, in Hebron, for all the places where David and his men had roamed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Now, as we read this story, it should be evident how God's providence was so evident as they left Ziklag to pursue the band of raiders 
who had burned the town. But first, let's remember what providence is. It's been a while, several chapters, but it's been evident throughout this whole book. Hopefully, this is one of those things you'll remember from 1 Samuel. Providence is God's gift and way of working for his people, and we need to know exactly what it means. But this is not an academic definition. This is more feet-on-the-ground kind of definition. What is providence? It's that frequently mysterious, always interesting way in which God provides for his servants in their various needs. That frequently mysterious, always interesting way in which God provides for his servants in their various needs. So what was David's first and biggest need as he and his men set out to recover their families? Should be an easy question. David may suspect that it was the Amalekites who he is after, but we don't read that immediately in the text, do we? Even if he did know for sure who it was, how was he going to find where they went? This region of the world would be considered by most to be a vast wasteland at worst and a barren wilderness at best. All they probably could count on was the general direction that the raiders went, just by a process of elimination. That is, away from any settlements, etc. These were nomadic raiders. That means they moved around constantly. The text says in verse 9 that they came to the brook or the wadi, remember that definition, Bezor, which is usually a dry, not sometimes much bigger than a trench, but it's a place where a little brook runs when there's been rain somewhere and it flows downhill to wherever this is in this wasteland. This wadi was 15 miles due south of Ziklag, and it ran more or less east and west. Kind of like this, Ziklag's 15 miles to the north. Now, as we realize what these dimensions are, we, we can learn some things because we know that this march took its toll on David and his men. And these guys were not rookies. And we can get a very good idea about how rough this open terrain was by the fact that one-third of his men, 200, were so spent and exhausted that they just couldn't go any further. So David left them there and went on with 400 men. But to where? That's the question. Finding the Egyptian slave in this open country was not luck and certainly not a luxury they could do without. The only way that they would ever find the marauders was the way that God provided for them to. And God, of course, knew that. That's the understatement of the century. When we read these verses, we don't see in the text itself an explanation that God is the one who provided in his providential care this servant. You do not read that there. But we are supposed to read well enough to understand 
that this is what we're supposed to get out of it. This is in historical narrative. This is how it works. He needed somebody to tell him where these Amalekites went, or whoever at this point, before he knew that for sure, where the raiders were. So we're supposed to suspect this as we read it. And the reason is, is because you and I need to ponder. We need to ponder and think about seriously how God supplies what is necessary to keep his promises to David. That's exactly what he's doing. And after this Egyptian is rescued from his own certain death in this barren land, he provided the answers to David's questions. And he even agreed to do what? To guide them to where the Amalekites would be. But you notice that he made sure first that David promised him he would live and not be turned over to his master, the Amalekite. Of course, that man probably would not be living much longer. Do you think that slave owner that discarded this slave when he was sick after the raid realized how that one act would be used by God to be his own undoing, the own undoing of all these Amalekites. In other words, this is another bright light shining in a dark place that should encourage us to see, yes, God is in charge and he does know what he's doing and he uses everything to accomplish his purposes. In verse 16, we read, and when... The Egyptian had taken David down. Behold, the Amalekites are spread abroad over all the land. And what were they doing? Eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil that they'd taken from. And this is cool information here. From the Philistines, but that wasn't all. And from the land of Judah. So then we look at the second section here next in verses 17 through 20 and we see how God's promises were kept. Because when he had inquired of the Lord and called the priest with his ephod, the vest that, that included the Urim and the Thurim, which is the way in the Old Testament you could get answers to yes and no questions about what he should do. And God answered those questions specifically that way. We need to see... Well, did God keep his promises? Which helps us answer the question, does God keep his promises? In these four verses, we get a short but very vivid description of how completely God kept his promise to David. And it certainly wasn't hard to surprise these people in the middle of nowhere, so far south, of anywhere that had any name at all. They were too busy celebrating their successes. Notice what the text says. Only 400 young men escaped on camels. Did that create any gray cells stirring amongst you? What does that say about the size of their whole group? David only had 400 men with him. 
And this says, only 400 men escaped on the back of camels. This was a huge gathering of probably all sorts of Amalekite raiding bands that had been spreading out all over the country doing their duty to their name. Huge, huge bunch of men. What is emphasized in these verses, this is pretty hard to miss. Did you notice which word? David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. Then we read again, David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds. The the people drove the livestock before him and said, this is David's spoil. Do you see Christ in the Old Testament? The answer to that is none of us see him as vividly as he really is portrayed, looked to, pointed to. David is a type of the future king of kings who will bear his throne, the coming Messiah. Are you with me? How much of what belongs to David does he recover? All. Plus from other places. What does that tell you about how faithful your Lord is? A lot. It tells us a lot. It should calm our fears. It should squelch our doubt. It should give us a humble, humble spirit of gratefulness and confidence in our God. The next section in verses 21 through 25 gives us a picture of exactly how David was now conducting his day-to-day life. And he was living by God's grace. In the last few chapters, we've seen him living by his own wits with hardly any connection to wanting to know how God would have him behave. This is such a breath of fresh air if you've been here going through this book for a while. After seeing his utter dependence upon his own wits during this whole time with the Philistines, going to the Philistines to get away from Saul, trying to kill him, without, without what? Without inquiring of the Lord. In fact, he had had specific instruction from a prophet not to leave Judah. But he did. Because he was just too worn out by the whole process of fleeing for his life and taking care of 600 men and their families in wasteland, what we would consider desert. The pressure had grown too great. He said, I've got it figured out, and he took off. And then all this stuff happens, and it looked like it was going to work. And then the Philistine king said, you know, you've been so great for me, you're going to fight for me against Saul in the biggest battle we've ever had with Israel. And David realized right then he was caught between a rock and a hard place. 
okay, he's learned that lesson. God delivered him from having to fight in that battle by actually using Philistine army commanders to say, no, these Hebrews are not going to be with us. We're going to fight Hebrews. We're not going to have these guys with us. They could turn on us in the midst of the battle. God uses the most creative and unbelievable to us ways to deliver and come through faithfully according to his promises. Most of the time, way beyond anything we could imagine. David gets that. And in joy and exultation, he heads back to Ziklag, the town that the Philistine king Achish had given him to live in and actually rule in while he was off raiding people himself saying he was raiding Israelites, which is why Achish thought David was so honest. And they get back there, and the smoke is still coming up from the town. And they wailed and weeped for so long that they couldn't wail anymore. And then David did what? Strengthened himself in the Lord and inquired of God about what he should do. God didn't give him a map right then. That's kind of a familiar Old Testament theme as well. Gathered his men and left. 200 of them wore out after 15 miles. Now to get back from where they had gathered as an army in Aphek south to Ziklag was 80 miles about. So they had gone 20 miles a day. It's about three days, which is a long way on foot in that kind of territory, laden with your weapons. The next day was only 15, and 200 of them drove out, just wore out. We need to understand this as we look at this, because as David is living by grace now, he is again, again, giving us glimpses of what the King of Kings does for us in our own lives. When David and his 400 men and all their families and animals get back to the 200 men at that wadi, mean, greedy, graceless behavior erupts. Some of y'all might have experienced small amounts of this on the way to church this morning. It erupts in the most interesting times, does it not? But these men were serious. The men who were able to go on the whole mission, many of them, it says, made a demand. We read in verse 22, Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said. Now that tells you something right there. Remember, these guys have been with him for a long time. And remember earlier when they gathered together in another wilderness area, they were fleeing or their lives were in such bad shape. They showed up. So we know that a lot of these men had been through it. And we see every once in a while that they go back to their bad habits or their real attitudes come out. Maybe at first they knew that David had been anointed king already, but he wasn't reigning because Saul was in the throne and they wanted to throw their chips in with the guy they thought would would be it. But you know, that kind of 
lessened and lessened as more time went by and nothing happened and Saul was still alive, especially when David spared Saul's whole life, life twice in circumstances that looked like they were just given to him on a platter. And he said, no, I, I will not kill the Lord's anointed. He knew that was not his place to do it. So these guys have been reined in several times because they saw it as, hey, you can get him now. You can go be king. It'll be over. Well, this is an interesting twist on this little plot, is it not? Because they didn't go with us, we'll not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. Be grateful for that you guys that pooped out after 15 miles and couldn't go any farther, waiting at this little brook, guarding the baggage. I'd be willing to bet that every one of us has had this attitude more than we want to admit, and when we see it, it makes you just want to go like that. So the question is, how's David going to handle this one? This is another way of these men saying, you didn't fight, so you don't get anything but your family's back. Sounds like a lot of pure malice and selfishness is on the loose in David's camp. So David then dealt with this situation in a way that mirrored many of the ways God had dealt with him. Let, let me say that again. David then dealt with this situation in a way that mirrored many of the ways that God had dealt with him. Because in David's life, he'd never ignored God's instruction, never tried to figure out his thing, things his own way, never done anything selfishly. Get it? Notice first that there is a warmth to what David said and how he said it. I don't think too many of us, maybe any of us, would have started off with, you shall not do so, my brothers. True? You idiots. What do you think you're doing? Who do you think you are? And we would have probably gone on from there. This is important. Then he blends this warmth appeal that he starts off with with a very powerful and persuasive argument in the rest of verse 23. After you shall not do so, my brothers, you notice there's no negotiating here, but he said it in a way that was warm. You're, we're, we're connected. We're a part of each other. What, with what the Lord has given us, he has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. See where he's going? Then he follows that with an expression of disbelief that they would even think of doing such a thing. Verse 24. Who would even listen to you in this matter? David then ends the matter with a statement of decisive authority, doesn't he? Verse 25, the share of the one who goes into battle 
is to be the same as the share of the one who remains with the supplies. Then they will share equally. And we find out that this procedure went into the books. This was the way Israel was to work from now on. Would you follow a king like this? Every guy in here I know is going, you bet. If I had two men, that's the king I want to follow. Right there. He, he knows what he's doing. He has a reason for what he's doing. And he is under someone else's authority that is much greater than him. True? Do you see why David could do this? Because that's how God has dealt with him. Called him back to himself. We need to look at this even closer because it's another Old Testament event that helps us understand the important difference between operating out of works and living by God's grace. David basically tells his men that we're not going to operate the way you want to. But why does he tell him that? Because it is the Lord who has given to us. Verse 23. You shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given us and given into our hand the band that came against us. In other words, David's theology was being lived out. It's not just up here. His theology determined his point of view, how he looked at life and the situations that God brings into your life. Your theology of grace is what will keep your eyes riveted on what the Lord gives and provides. Now, do you remember a certain parable that Jesus told about servants that were hired in the morning and servants that were hired in the evening and the guys in the morning wanted full pay and the guys in the evening got paid full and the other guys were jealous and it goes back and forth. Remember what, the, does that point ring a bell? See, that's in here too. The men causing the disturbance were operating out of a works mentality. And you know how works will always show up in our lives, knowing that we're off target, that we're not operating by grace? Because works are always impressed with their own contributions. It, sometimes explicitly, literally. If you're operating out of works, you get upset if people don't notice. If you're operating out works, you get upset if you're not rewarded the way you think you should be. If you're operating out of work, you want plaques all over the place with your name on them. If people give them to you, that's great, but usually the person that's operating out of works is really bitter if those things do not happen. Anybody fall into that category? Oh, I think that's something all of us go back to really quickly. Their demand makes some sense. 
logical, doesn't it? Isn't it? But it only makes sense if you never recognize where your real help comes from. David, you see, had just learned this lesson and again in a very big way, hadn't he? When he recognized that it was the Lord who delivered him from that impossible situation with the Philistine army about to go against Israel. There wasn't any way, unless he was just blind and dead already, that he couldn't just be blown away of all the ways for God to deliver me from disaster. The Philistines themselves told me to go home. And let me do it. He had just lived through that. He learned the lesson. Another question. Do we learn the lessons that God shows us like this? Usually it's, that's not the right question. Usually the question is how many times do we have to learn this lesson? Now David was applying that truth to this situation arising with this successful mission against the Amalekites. He could not, he would not, let his men fall into the idolatry of trusting in their own self-sufficiency when he knew it was the Lord who had delivered them and guided them. He even gave him the extra hint, how do we get here, guys? Can you hear this conversation going? You think that guy was just wandering around in the middle of the desert by accident? God put him there. God spared his life so that he could show us where these guys are. See, we miss details like that all the time in our day-to-day walks. All the time. And the point is we need to learn to see them. God's hand, God's direction, God's care, and God's protecting us when we would self-destruct. It happens frequently. David is now on track for assuming the throne of Israel very soon now. In case you haven't done what probably everybody should have done already is read the last chapter, Saul dies. And then it's the ascent to the throne. And it's not always just, yay, here he comes, there he goes, it'll be wonderful now. David is ready to assume the throne after this. God knows that he's ready. Grace does not just apply to how you are saved in Christ, but as we've seen, it applies to every moment of our Christian lives. For David, this means he knows what must occupy every moment of his upcoming life as the king. And even then, we know that some of the biggest stuff that he fails in is is still in the next book. But he knows this. He's operating out of grace. In other words, what should dominate David's thinking and control his decisions and action is what the Lord has given him and the Lord's people. What the Lord has given him and the Lord's people. What has he done already? that you can stand on. And in the same way, grace must dominate and must be the decisive factor in our theology. We must constantly confess 
that this success or this employment or this loved one or this health or this meal is what the Lord has given us. One rendering of 1 Corinthians 4, the first part of verse 7 says something that ought to be highlighted. Actually, it ought to be written right right up here. Well, backwards, so when you look in the mirror, you can see it. For who makes you so superior? What do you have that you didn't receive? Boy, that cuts to the core, doesn't it? Dale Ralph Davis writes, You will find living by grace humbling. But it is the only thing that will keep you from worshiping yourself. You will find living by grace humbling. But it is the only thing that will keep you from worshiping yourself. I'm going to throw in a quote right here from John Newton who wrote Amazing Grace and had more pastoral duties with needy tragedy himself and it seemed like everybody else he dealt with. And he ministered mainly outside of his area as he became famous for this, for his pastoral care by writing letters, which we have many of. And in dealing with these situations, here's what he said to someone in one of these situations. Everything is needful that God sends. Nothing can be needful that he withholds. Do you realize how much of the gospel that grabs right there? Everything in your life successes as well as failures that he's allowed or sent is needful for you to be sanctified the way he wants you to be sanctified. Not that you would choose to repeat stuff or tell somebody else to in order to learn the lesson. But everything is used by God. Everything is needful that he sends. Nothing can be needful that he withholds. So if you don't have something and you want it, and that doesn't mean just material things, and he hasn't granted it, then you don't really need it. We ought to stop right there, but we've still got the end of the chapter. Finally, we come to this last paragraph, which shows us how encouraging God's victory is and not just to his men and their families. There's some surprises here at the end that that I think are wonderful. Verse 26, when David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, here's a present for you from the spoil of the enemy of the Lord. And then at the end of the chapter, which would be better if I read it silently, because every Jewish name in the world is in there, Hebrew name in the world. Got it? I mean, the list is there. Now, why would God put the list there of all the people that he sent stuff to? Well, it tells you not only how many people David 
was blessing, it also tells you probably where the Amalekites had been. Because it said they'd raided in Judah, and those people had lost spoil as well. So some of those people had some stuff missing, and then David comes in and sends stuff back. And a lot of times they hadn't had anything missing, and he blesses them with it anyway. These are spoils from the enemies of the Lord. Does that kind of sound like the return of Christ to you? In some way? There's some little things in there that just make you kind of excited when you realize this is how it's going to wind up. <laughs> this is how it's going to finish. So there's this long list of where he sent the parts of the spoil that the Lord had given them from the Amalekites. And the big understanding there is in verse 16 where we learn that the Amalekites had raided places in the land of the Philistines and in the land of Judah. So many of these communities had experienced the Amalekite raids. And now David is returning some of their stolen loot. But you know what? This is also a very wise way for David to win more support and preparation for the coming day sooner than he probably realized that he would be assuming the royal throne of Israel. The huge number of these gifts of the Amalekite loot he got back by the Lord's hand should remind us again of how faithful God is in delivering on what he promised to David. You can hear David's understanding of this fact by what he said to these recipients. Again, here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. What did not he say? What didn't he say? How would you have said it? How would a politician have said it? Well, guys... I told the men to save some of this for you after our great and wonderful victory where we all fought with extreme strength, wisdom, and knowledge. So here, I'll, here's part of it for you. Count it as a blessing from me. Not one word pointing to himself. David had learned to live day by day by grace again. What a way to teach us this. Now, in case you're wondering or feeling sorry for the Amalekites, let me read you in closing here before we get to the uh, celebration of the Lord's Supper a list of sort of what the Old Testament reveals to us about the Amalekites, okay? <clears throat> From the books of Moses, they'd been repeatedly attacking Israel beginning in the Exodus, Exodus 17, 14. I, the Lord, will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Exodus 17, 16. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Deuteronomy 25. Remember that what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from your, all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. Did they obey? No, they did not. So they continued to be this pest. 
This is a great illustration of the spiritual war going on around us. And the consequences and repercussions of sin down through the ages. The point is that because the Amalekites have constantly been in war with God's people, they must deal with the shepherd. The bigger picture that this portrays is the greater war between the Lord's people and his enemies, which will not be finally settled until the king of kings returns in glory. David's victory then here in chapter 30 of 1 Samuel is a promise and a picture of how it will be when the king of kings makes the Messiah's enemies his footstool. It will happen, no matter what happens in between now and then. Somebody observed that this chapter, by the way, if a freshman in English class would, could get this picture if they were looking for the big themes. This chapter begins in tragedy and ends in triumph. But the point is that the Lord has a way of doing just that, doesn't he? beginning with what looks like tragedy and ending in triumph. Let's pray as we prepare for the Lord's table. Father, again, we, we come before you with thankful, encouraged hearts as we see how you are completely faithful. We, we see that as your faithfulness to David, who you chose to be the next king, is being, is being laid out before our very eyes in some of the strangest circumstances we've ever read about. And we see your hand in all of it, and we see his suffering through it, his learning process through it, and how it all depends on you, and how depending on you, and living by your grace, knowing what you have given us. For him, the promised Savior to come, for us, the Savior who has come, is the only thing that will guard us from the idolatry that tries to grow continually in our own hearts. Oh God, we pray that as we come to the table this morning, that we would understand that Jesus instituted this meal for us to picture the very same truths about him and your purposes for us. And we pray that you would, you would seal this and sear our hearts with these truths. And we ask that in Christ's name. Amen.